Welcome to the Lift Dead podcast. My name is Scott McKean. And with me today, as usual, is Eric Yatman, my uh, co-host. And on today's podcast, we're really excited to have as our guest, researcher, speaker, and neuroscientist, Dr. Robin Mazunder. Um, Some of our Edmonton listeners will remember Robin, who lived and worked here for years. Um, And there was, Robin, there was something about a snowball fight. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yank snow fight hashtag. What was to run that bias again? So what 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 was that all about? Um, basically, uh, it started on a out of a Twitter conversation with someone I hadn't met, but who lived in Edmonton, and I think it snowed in like October or something, and uh, we just had a conversation about how we were excited to have a snowball fight to kind of be optimists about the impending winter, and then we decided to have you know, a public snowball fight and made like a simple website and just asked people to submit their contact info and that we would text them when we were going to hold this kind of spontaneous spot, um, site and, or sorry, fight. And then, uh, and then the media caught hold of it and it just kind of blew up. So it went to like 3000 emails, I think in like two weeks. And it was probably the most magical time of my time in Edmonton, but like that, that, that week just because it, it was kind of surreal to see it you know turn out with i think there was like 500 or a thousand people um and no one got hurt and we uh <laughs> we raised some money and got some food for the food bank so it was super special and that was with jeff chase i should mention he was a, a planner with the city of edmonton at the time so that to me and we may uh, certainly be touching on that today about sense of community that to me speaks of or spoke of a latent demand for something. Yes? Yes. It was a prototype. Yeah. It was, it was for connection. I think people just want to connect with each other. Like right. a reason and to have fun with strangers. Cool. Um, so um, would you now, because your journey to where you are now was a little bit of an unusual one. You were in Edmonton. You were uh, your occupational therapist. And I I know you talked to me then when we first ran into each other about the loneliness, the social isolation of your clients. Um, and, And did that then lead you on this journey? Yeah, I mean, it started in in Toronto when I had my first job um, at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. I worked on an inpatient psychiatry unit, and my primary role is really to get people out of the hospital and into the community because it was good for their health. And obviously, there's a financial kind of uh, benefit to, to not having people in a hospital. But the transition piece of getting people from the institutional setting to their communities got me thinking about this kind of environmental influence on health because um, OTs, uh, you know, I think we, we really situate our work uh, with an appreciation of the of the environment, whether that's the physical or the social. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I came to Edmonton, that continued and, uh, that continued and um, then I got involved with Make Something Edmonton while I was working as an OT 
which led to the to to the um, poverty task force, uh, which led to the Reach uh, Council for Sa Safe uh, Communities. I think it's called. Um, and all of that just showed me while I was an occupational therapist that there was this massive, massive need to the, to get healthcare professionals or people with an interest in it uh, and these conversations on cities because the impact it has can be uh, amazing and it's very widespread. Um, so yeah, seeing how lonely people were and how the absence of infrastructure like parks or, or adequate um, transit uh, access uh, to see that exacerbate someone's mental illness was pretty difficult for me to see. So, started me on my on my journey of trying to figure out how I would study it. Well, tell us about that journey. Well, um, I was so I, I got I got burnt out actually as a therapist, and um, so I took a, a break, and I ended up uh, running a startup accelerator at Nate. Um, kind of a pivot, uh, but in the process uh, for that role, I learned about different methodologies for business development, like lean methodology, but I took a course um, from the Stanford Design School. They came to Edmonton and they ran a workshop in design thinking. And obviously what I had been doing for the past five years was still on my mind, like despite my um, departure from it, um, and within this design thinking course, there was a, an emphasis on empathy uh, as being a necessary step in creating something of value and a meaning to whoever you're intending your product or whatever to, to be for. And it just kind of made me think about what would a city look like if it was design thought. Um, and so... Uh, I wasn't sure how to even study this. I was applying to architecture schools and um, I randomly on Twitter came across a, uh, a tweet with a, an article in it that said, um, streets with no game, how boring cities are bad for mental health. And, it, and that was an Eon magazine. Um, and I read it and I was like, okay, this is exactly the type of thinking that I would like to kind of, you know, get closer to and learn more about. And so I emailed the author who ended up being a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Waterloo, um, Dr. Colin Ellard. And uh, I had no psychology background, um, certainly not a whole lot of neuroscience, didn't do the best in neuroanatomy in my mm -hmm. master's. So it wasn't a strong point for me, but he saw the reason I wanted to do the research and gave me a shot. And so then I did my PhD with him in cognitive neuro cognitive neuroscience and that was to use uh, wearable technology to, to measure what's happening to your body and you know psychologically through questionnaires and whatnot and we looked at how people experience different urban environments uh, in the real world in the city but also through uh, vr through through the use of like 360 degree video or manufactured environments so that article the premise of that uh is interesting and it was that boring cities are bad yeah. for our mental health. Mm -hmm. So what is what what do we what do we mean then if <laughs> if it was uh, uh, not a boring city? What does that look like and what does that do for our mental health? So, if I recall correctly, um, what Colin was primarily referring to in that article was just the consequences of you know blocks. Of facades being dedicated to banks where there's no porosity or no way to engage with your environment 
you know, it's just, it's boring. There's nothing happening. Um, and then from a, like a, like a, so I guess the opposite to that would just be, you know, like I'm living in Berlin now and getting kind of used to the city and, and learning about it. And there's like, it's, it's wild. Like the streets are just full, full of people because there's so many opportunities for people to sit and connect and, you know, it's, it's affordable for the most part. And so you kind of see that. And so Berlin is the opposite of boring. I could probably confidently say so in that capacity and just in terms of what um, uh, affordances people have within the environments that they live in, uh, you know, if you, if you, the worst kind of uh, punishment is, is social isolation, right? So if you're designing for connection, then you're fundamentally um, going to be a, a happier city. And then another element to that idea of boringness is just this idea of aesthetics. So how we design our cities, what it looks like, um, this notion of like biophilic architecture, uh, intentional design that creates a positive emotion through the visual perception of it is, a, is another way to look at um, how to address boringness. I have like 12 follow-up questions for you <laughs> yeah uh, so one, first uh i think berlin is the my, is my favorite city like i i don't awesome. uh, i don't know why but i love berlin like why do i love berlin you know one thing that struck me about berlin so i came here in 2018 after um uh, some speaking engagements and a bit of a tour of europe and at that time i was really immersed um, you know, and this just, that was, I was immersed in the urbanist world. So I saw everything from that perspective and, and I still do today, but just not that intensely. Um, but it was just one of the things that struck me about Berlin was that it didn't seem like the city really cared too much about permits, despite my other experience with German bureaucracy, like they like paperwork, but it seems that people can just start a bar in a park, you know, and to me, what that suggests in uh, the opposite of boring is that when you have agency over your environment and you have psychological ownership over it, it's a lot easier to feel at home and like rested in your body when you're, it's, you're kind of okay to be yourself, which I think is probably one of other way people would describe, describe Berlin. It's a, it's a city of individuals and they kind of celebrate uniqueness here. Like there's not lots of stares for things that you might get stared at for in Canada because people just, they don't care. So it's, a, no, I, it's an easy place to be yourself. So that that reminds me, <clears throat> years ago, I remember writing a lot about private versus public space. Mm -hmm. So in Edmonton, in our downtown, we had um, these malls developed. And so uh, by virtue of that, you had a lot of private space that was there for strolling and sitting and visiting. Uh, and yet I think um there's something different there you don't feel as comfortable in private space as you do in public space but i wanted to get your take on that yeah i mean i can speak from personal experience i i was uh in toronto filming uh buildings for my uh dissertation research and i was on king street and like Bank King, like the epicenter of like capitalist kind of bankers in, in Toronto. And um, the buildings are very stark there. So I thought they'd be the perfect stimuli to test whether 
you know, these kinds of environments stress people out. And I was standing on a sidewalk and I was um, filming using my 360 camera to get some film of the building. And the security guard came up to me and told me I couldn't do that. And I thought I was on the sidewalk. And then he said to me, well, no, we own this part of the sidewalk too. <laughs> so, you know, it, the, my feelings on that is that we need to, I think, corporate contributions to, you know, uh, urban design or community resources is, is important. You know, and I think a lot of corporations do that. They'll trade, you know, a few extra stories of their hotel for, to build a park, which is what they did in Vancouver which has a sign on, on a grass saying stay off of grass. And it was built to be a way to kind of make up for, you know, the, the impact of the, the height of the building. Um, so I think cities really need to have very strict laws and, and requirements of corporations um, because we will have to have a mix of private and public space. Um, but it, there needs to be some, some regulation around it because the extent of, um, of surveillance or policing in these spaces is high, especially if you look a certain way, whether you're a brown person, a black person, an indigenous person, um, someone who looks homeless. When you when people get kicked out of space that is accessible accessible to the public because someone else has authority over that space, I think it's something that really needs to be taken seriously. Yeah, I think <clears throat> when I knew you were doing this work, what, what strikes me about this and makes me curious is I think we have all had the experience of being in an area and being enlivened um, and then being in another area and and maybe not even noticing that it's sort of sucking the energy <laughs> out of us. We have this, we have these urban environments that I, it's just hard for the layman to know exactly what um, what makes for a healthy area and what makes for an unhealthy area. Is your research getting us closer to that? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, what I've been doing since uh, my PhD is a postdoc at the Technical University here, working on a multi-university a uh, research project called um, Research Platform um, Neuro-Urbanism. And basically its intention is to A, develop a, a standardized approach to trying to understand these questions so that we can scale these experiments and get you know multicultural perspectives on these sorts of questions. Um, but we're also working with psychiatric geneticists who are looking at epigenetics um, of the built urban built environment, which basically means that they study how urban stress will turn on genes for for mental illness. So there's a whole array, you know. But fundamentally, I think for just my my view on what is probably the most common way of like or universal way of understanding um, this this impact that the uh, urban environment can have on us is just to think about the physiological experience of stress. Um, whether that's being, you know, honked at while you're on your bike or, you know, like uh, cars are loud, you're scared of crossing the street or you're a woman and it's an area that's not well lit. These sorts of experiences, I think, form the foundation of either 
obviously affecting someone's mood to the extent in a, in a, in a kind of chronic way or chronic exposure can create like mental illness. So we're trying to find the, the perfect medium of urban density uh, while we're considering the kind of aesthetic variables as well as just what the design allows people to do. Yeah, I remember having discussions about uh, the height of buildings mm -hmm. and, and being able to see the sky or not and mm -hmm. and that having an impact on us as um you know animals that, that were on the savannah at some point and and there's something about uh being able to see the sky that is comforting mm -hmm. yes um i mean it's interesting i mean evolutionary psychology is a fairly highly contested space because most of it involves speculation um, unprovable speculation, but I've been interested in it because I feel that if we understand just human evolution from the perspective of what our basic needs are and what the landscapes, you know, look like, um, we might be able to, you know, return ourselves to that, to that way of being. So, uh, it's just a, it's a way to kind of think about how to, how to learn from the past, I guess, in a way. Um, you were on one of the early panels for in Poverty Edmonton as it was being formed out of um, the work by um, then Mayor Don Iveson. Yes? Yep. I, yeah, I was the co-chair of the uh, Community Wellbeing Working Group alongside uh, Maria Mayan from the University of Alberta. So I'm wondering if... So the design of the inner city or the design of um, poorer neighborhoods contribute to poverty or are a reflection of poverty, or if we invested in those communities, we could uplift the people, you know? So is it, does built environment contribute to or um, perpetuate poverty? Uh, almost certainly, I would say. Um, and I think that exists in many ways. Um, I think using an equity lens would be a good place to start so that we see how some people are disproportionately affected um, by poverty and then what their neighborhoods look like and what they have access to. And, you know, we live in a democratic society that values human rights, but within our own cities, the disparity of just the access to basic human rights is so high um, and that basically starts the downhill snowball effect of like mental illness for some people. So poverty is directly intersected with what the environment offers you, the opportunities or, you know, other kind of socioeconomic factors. Um, and if there's a disparity in that, then uh, mental health and addictions and everything else, I think, are connected to that. What? So I, I'm very curious about what using an equity lens means in this context. Like, can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, I think that um, obviously in recent years, this has become a fairly dominant part of the conversation around privilege and equity. And it's, you know, it's highly... Uh, I would say it's controversial, but people have opinions um, uh, about it. Um, 
but in my experience as a person of color, uh, but also a researcher who looks at equity, I think that using an equity lens not only looks helps us understand the proportions of people and their characteristics, um, but it also gives us insight. Um, and this is what I look at for my research uh, in neuroscience. Uh, it gives us insight into the disparity of the experience of public space itself. Um, and I think that when we consider what people have access to and then how people experience that, what they have access to, it's a, I think it's like a, a it's an exponentiating effect that I think has consequences health wise and, and uh, yeah, much more. You know, that, that, and that's what I'm getting at. Like, what would be different? Like what, what, how would the world be different if we, if we were to use that lens? Oh man, I mean, yeah, I know. I, yeah, I asked, no, I asked, I asked the big, hard-hitting questions. <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. So I've been thinking a lot about this. Actually, I've been writing about this for a, a paper, just trying to figure out how do I kind of situate my opinion on things and my kind of theoretical positions. And Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is what everyone, most people, I think, are familiar with at some point in in school, we've learned about. Um, Abraham Maslow's um, psycho psychological approach to, to human actualization, which involves access to those basic needs. To me, that's an equity lens. And when you look at that as a foundation for a starting point, the top of that pyramid beyond well-being is actualization. So the what it would look like if we lived in a truly equitable society, which probably 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 will never happen, but we can improve our direction of it. Um, people will be given the opportunity to like live out their purpose should they choose to, you know? And I think that has all sorts of implications on who's poor and who's not, and who has access to healthcare and stuff like that. So this is a bit of a weird one, maybe. Um, yeah. In Edmonton, I've heard some of our parks at least park spaces being described as green concrete. So hmm. we, we, we create this park, a uh, lot of grass, obviously put trees in, or there maybe were trees existing. But a lot of those parks, if you go by them, will be empty a lot of the time. So uh, that, that fascinates me, uh, hmm. that we've created these spaces that really should be good for our mental health but somehow are not drawing the crowds. Any thoughts mm -hmm. on that, Robin, as to why they're not working? Well, um, I was part of a, a, a group uh, doing some equity, like an equity focused uh, research group out of Carleton being led um, by uh, Rachel Buxton. And I think uh, she's a professor, I think of, of ecology there. Um, but I think like fundamentally, you know, how do we, how do we even, how do we develop a, a public education around the benefits of green space? So, you know, if we can develop a way to say, you know, one half an hour in the park is like, you know, not smoking 10 packs of cigarettes or something or whatever, quantifying the, uh, like a tangible quantification of the benefits, that might be one thing, because I think people know that going to the park is good but maybe the direct health benefits may not be as apparent so that might be one thing is just the lack of understanding um, or awareness not by anyone's you know uh, fault we're just learning about these things actively 
Um, and then I think from a design perspective, and this isn't commentary on the empty parks in Edmonton, because I'm not sure what tons you're talking about, but it's, I think that when we use a psychological lens on it, um, I mentioned this, I think I mentioned this term earlier, it's affordances. And that was a concept proposed by a perceptual psychologist in the seventies named JJ Gibson. And basically an affordance is the way in which uh, a human can interact or engage with an object or a space. Um, and so uh, a park with nothing to do in it, it's just a big empty expanse of space of grass or something. Isn't particularly appealing because there's not much opportunity to do anything beyond mm. sit or run. Um, and then the space itself has to be designed in a way that employs design principles that, you know, allow people solitude, but also the, the, the opportunity to connect. And so it's like a blank slate. And I think that there's, you know, there's lots of really simple things that we can do to, to get people to move into parks. Like what? Um, letting people, I don't, I don't even know if this is like a, a law in Edmonton, but during the pandemic, but like letting people have drink alcohol in parks, you know, and I think that's a, might sound like a odd thing to hear from a healthcare professional, but, you know, I think that when we create a culture of like taboo around something, it, it clearly doesn't work and, and people are going to do it anyways. And so I think the idea of drinking in your private home creates this notion that this, the city isn't yours in that regard. That's just like one example. And I, I bet you if people can do picnics and bring their wine and stuff. I think that in itself, I think activating the space. So the egg snow fight, I think was a good example of the activation of, a, of an otherwise empty space, which was near Kinsman and it was the winter. Um, so, so doing kind of pop-up events or, you know, you guys are great at that. Like Folk Fest is, is one example of, of a way to to bring a lot of people to an otherwise, you know, probably more lightly used space. The the park in my head is Michael Fair Park on 104. I've never seen yeah. anybody. I've never seen anybody in it. And that's not to disparage Michael Fair in any way, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> the park looks lovely, but there's I've never seen anybody in it. So you, you've talked about a bunch of things that I... I think it's worth sort of exploring a little bit more. Uh, you said that the worst form of punishment is social isolation. Uh, you talked about the need for us to connect and get together. And I, 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 I don't know what we've done wrong that Berlin has done right, where mm. in Berlin you can feel your authentic self or your true self. And in Edmonton, you've got to shamefully uh, drink in your living room as opposed to in the park. Um, and I like... I've asked this question to a couple of people, but I think if you have the magic wand, if you have the, if you're assigned fix Edmonton, you know, make, mm -hmm. make this, make this place better through design or, or whatever sort of uh, opportunity you'd like to, what would you do? Like, what would you, uh, I have a magic wand. Yeah. Okay. You're, 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 I, I, I use the word czar. Like I've said, like if you're like okay. the, the, the urban right. design czar, yeah, you're the mayor, whoever is allowed to do these things. Like you, you get that assignment. You but get I, that. I can do something that's almost impossible. I have that yeah. capacity. Yeah. Okay. So God, I, God has God has got it. Okay. Just trying to be realistic here. Um, but, but the first thing that came to mind for me when I was contrasting Berlin from Edmonton or Victoria, where I grew up, or Toronto, where I've lived, or Kitchener Waterloo, 
there's a there's a unifying difference and i think it's a cultural attitude towards life in general and i'm not saying canadians don't have that attitude but i think that when you live in a society like where people can drink in parks and just like it's a bit more uh, relaxed people feel more compelled to go outside it's i i see park space specifically in berlin because all of them are packed it's crazy it's 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 super interesting to see but the other thing i you know i think i should mention here is that they're necessary because the densification the dense the density of berlin is high but there's no real skyscrapers it's just like square kilometers of like six-story row housing so we don't have a backyard i have a courtyard in the middle and luckily i have a big tree um beside my balcony so i get my daily green exposure but you know to be outside uh is to access parks and i think when the collective is not forced but they're you know their their environment kind of shapes their perception of park space as that then in my mind um it becomes an extension of your living room and sorry robin um go ahead i cut you yeah off. Yeah, I was just going to make a, a point about an example in Canada that made me think about this. Uh, my friend uh, Kuen lives in like uh, um, Koreatownish in Toronto, and uh, he's got two kids and they're young. And he was telling me that all the parents <laughs> share a toy box that they leave at the park. And I just kind of blew my mind because to me, it was such a beautiful example of of how people can ha create more space to them for themselves through a sense of community, but also a sense of ownership and, and, and entitlement to being in those kinds of spaces. I got to follow up before you go. Uh, sorry, I was talking to Scott. We're making eye contact here. Uh, it's all good. So, yep. so you you're you you wave the wand and you compel us Edmontonians to go outside. What does that accomplish? Like, why why do you want us to go outside? Okay, two, I mean, off the top of my head, two things. One is, you know, access to green space has been shown through mostly correlational or population level studies. So we don't know the mechanism, but it's suggested to have a positive benefit um, on our mental health through sheer exposure to it. And then the secondary aspect of it would be just the fact that when there are more people out, you don't feel as lonely, you know, and like I've had my own experiences, you know, and challenges with mental health and experiences of loneliness. And I just remember how great it felt to be able to, you know, this is during my, I had a, a depressive episode during my master's program at, at the University of Toronto. And I just remember walking through Kensington Market and I, I, it was amazing. Like I didn't, I, it addressed something that was afflicting me, you know, just being around people I think can be a really positive experience because it just kind of reminds you of life. So I'm going to jump in and say, we are a little hard on Edmonton sometimes. <laughs> well, on Sunday I was Who's over. We? Uh, Us, uh, collectively we uh, are. Okay. We got it, got it. Yeah, because, you know, on Sunday uh, I was over, I watched my son's band play in the area of the uh, farmer's market building in Old Strathcona. I don't know if you could picture that. Robin, yep. but yep. the place, and we went out for dinner after the place, that area was bustling with people and the, uh, you know, the, the park area 
by the farmer's market building was bustling with people. So we do, White Avenue is a pretty good example of an, mm-hmm. of a place that attracts people. And a lot of them, you see them outside. I think we failed downtown with our malls because that hides people inside. And the other example, I was talking about green concrete earlier, but if you go down to Horlack Park, not this year, but Horlack Park traditionally, was really busy uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of newcomer families in that in that picnic area but but all kinds of people in the other parts of the park throwing frisbees or being near the water or whatever so that was a busy park that was succeeding in ways i would suggest some other parks aren't so that's why i mean i think that i'm hoping that your studies uh by you and your colleagues will you know, be able to illustrate this more for us. So what what works, what doesn't work? Uh, I think programming is fine, but it's wonderful when a public space just seems to naturally attract people to hang around it. hundred percent. You know, and I think if you want to look at that access and, and, and um, you know, education about the space, it's, it's going to be key. I mean, some people might just need to know about it. That was actually kind of, one of my favorite things about the river valley is like there'd all be there'd be all these kind of like little mysterious little parks everywhere. So Edmonton has a lot of access to green space too, which I think should be factored into the density of people that you observe in them. Yeah. Um, where at, where in cities that are highly populated, all the parks are full because the population density is just much higher. So um, they're forced to seek it out as opposed to you know discovering them by mistake in Edmonton. The story I tell about uh, urban design impacting mental health and lifestyle is 109th Street downtown. I think it's seven lanes, um, uh, three lanes each way with a turning lane. Mm -hmm. And I live just in Oliver uh, to the west of 109th Street. And I almost and, and and there's lots of opportunities for coffee and on on the east side of 109th Street, I almost never cross it. It's mm-hmm. like it's this Nile River that I never <laughs> am wanting to swim across. And you know, I could do it. I know I could do it safely, but I just it's like I don't wanna I don't wanna go that way. Yeah. It's it's totally understandable. I mean, I lived on a Similar in its effect, I would say, street in Kitchener-Waterloo called Weaver Street, which was basically an urban freeway that was built because people were angry about um, the LRT being built. But the point being is people just fly down this road. You know, it's super loud. It's just just like a, it's not a positive experience, you know. And so that essentially is, is a concrete moat of sorts. You know, it's, it's, it's almost a barrier. And for most people, it's a barrier just because of the sheer experience of it. Yeah, and I think my point is, I don't even consciously notice. I sort of at some point went, oh, that's weird. <laughs> I never crossed on Ninth Street. And yet, so I'm being deterred subconsciously in a way. And I, and I wonder then how much uh, impact the city has uh, on my decision-making otherwise or my mood uh day to day and i think that's what's really fascinating to me is we don't know um 
why we're drawn to some places and not others. And 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 I really look forward again to your work. Hopefully, <laughs> being able to eliminate that further. Uh, I want to ask you just as sort of a final thing here, Robin. Um, sure. If there was any question that you wanted to answer that we didn't ask. Oh gosh. Um, no, I, I think I think people get a pretty good understanding of what I do and why I do it. And the thing that I would maybe end with is that I really love Edmonton as a city and I miss it. And that's with all of its flaws. And But what makes Edmonton special to me, as opposed to other cities that I've lived in, which I think four or five Canadian cities, um, it's the friendliest city I've ever lived in, you know, and while physical infrastructure is certainly a necessity um, and maybe Edmontonians can get out to parks more. I just found and I it manifested for me when I just got very involved in the city, people inviting me to do things. There's a special thing there that I think is going to be very important in this toolkit, you know, for, for creating cities um, that promote well-being. And it's almost like a a secret sauce that you guys have. It's just how you are as a city. Well, let's leave it there. Um, <laughs> Robin, thanks. We'll be, we'll be doing a, we'll, we'll be doing more of these and, and we'll probably want to invite you back at some point. So uh, really appreciate your time. I think it's early evening in Berlin and you still have time to go out and enjoy the... Bar. I have another meeting. <laughs> <laughs> with with with, like, with, like, with someone in Canada in about half an hour or so, then and then I'll go. Okay, thanks for your time. Okay, take care.